Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. The painter Barclay Hendricks died in April of this year, two days after his 72nd birthday. In 2008, Hendricks' work was the subject of a retrospective at the Nasher Museum entitled The Birth of Cool. In the years following, he was represented by Jack Shaneman Gallery and had seen several of his works grow in value, mostly auctioned at Swan Galleries, which consistently raised the prices over the years to a record of $365,000, paid not once but twice in 2015 for two separate large portraits on a white ground, one called Tough Tony, the other Steve. This May, Sotheby's had three separate lots in its day sale. All three of them exceeded the record price. One, a pair of canvases entitled Innocence and Friend, sold for 396500 Another, a large dual portrait, sold for 942500 And finally, The Way You Look Tonight, a smaller work, sold for 960500 a new record for the artist. It's rare to see that kind of movement in any artist market. It just so happens Barclay Hendricks is a personal favorite of Amy Capalazzo, the chairman of the Fine Arts Division. She joins me here to talk about the background around the sale of those three lots and Barclay Hendricks' appeal as an artist. I know that you sold three works that I think were from the same consigner. Right. It was an estate. It was being sold by the children of the parents that collected these things. So the timing was not connected to Hendrick's own uh, demise recently. Well, cra- you know, crazy. I-, I was really kind of torturing Jack Shaneman to-, to let me interview Barkley or let us like do a video with him just talking about his work. And Jack was like, look, he's like, you know, <laughs> he's not going to be into that. He's sort of to go, you know, goes his own way. And I was sort of kind of trying to push Jack. And then he literally, we were kind of putting the catalogs to bed and getting everything ready and he just died. Oh, it's terrible. I know. And it was, it was very, and I thought to myself, did Jack know something that he didn't want to tell me? And, or maybe Barkley was just extra evasive or extra not wanting to be bothered with anything. Well, he has he has kind of an amazing story. I mean, he's discovered by the market after that Nasher show in 2008. And I presume yeah. there was really no secondary market for his work before then. He didn't he didn't even work with Shaman before that. It was Trevor's show really that put him on the map. I mean, I knew of his work before that because I was passionate about his work. I think the person that told me about his work were these two friends of mine who are both poets who know Barclay personally. And one was professor of African-American studies for a long time at Yale. Barclay had gone to Yale for both his um, undergraduate and graduate degrees. So, I mean... There were a lot of overlap there, but I came to know his work many, many years ago, earlier in my career, and was always transfixed by it, actually. Where did you see uh, his work? I, I knew it from the 90s, in the 90s. I believe that I saw a piece at Yale, at um, Yale University Art Gallery. And I used to go to Swan show, Swan Gallery shows and look to see his work there. So I used to attend those auctions and see them a lot. 
Yes, well, that they they sort of made what market there is uh, for his work and and made it quite well these last you know yeah, five or ten like years. And then in one fell swoop, you guys um, you know reset the market with all three of those works. Well, it was a really fortuitous. It was a very fortuitous situation that one estate happened to have three. I was connected through the estate via a family friend. I mean, I couldn't believe this was such a brave thing to have bought in. I suppose these were bought in the late 80s, maybe early 90s by the couple that owned them. They passed on and now, you know, I was dealing with their children. I just couldn't believe it. And there was there was sort of a discussion of like, could the market handle three at a time? Was there enough depth of market? Did people even know enough about him? I mean, the estimate we put on two of the works, one we put three, on Yox we put three to 400. And on the way you look tonight, we put two to 300. And the highest estimate ever put on a Barclay Hendricks was like 120 to 180 before that. But I knew we could sort of tell the market what they were worth or guide the market a little bit more. And where did the interest come from? People who were already knew who he was or were you able to get other people? Definitely new buyers. Like I took, I took a lot of people downstairs who are major evening sale collector types downstairs. Did you see the presentation of how we laid them out? Yes, they were by, um, was that the second floor, but they were, you know, all together on one wall. Exactly, with like, you know, three masterworks by Barclay Henry, you know, in profile. We had some sort of like (laughs) tagline or something uh, with like a different color font and text that said Barclay Hendricks. And, you know, I was so sad. I almost want to put like in memoriam, but I felt like we can't really, you know, we should just focus on the work rather than the artist in this way. But um, I brought a lot of people downstairs. (laughs) who are typically like big evening sale buyers to introduce them to the work if they didn't know it. And everybody could see right away. And these three happened to be three exceptionally good examples. They could see virtuosity in the the work. They could see that there was a lost, that Barclay was trying to recover or make up for a lost narrative of black portraiture that sort of didn't exist for a hundred years or so. And, it was amazing. Like there was, there's a sort of classicism to his portraits, right down to the gold leafing on the back and the silver leafing on the back. Uh, the gold leafing was the self-portrait where he has the, he's blowing the bubble with bubble gum. It's called the way you look tonight. And then the other one where it was like, it's a self-portrait with a banana and the two oranges. He was using silver leafing there, aluminum leaf actually. He was such a virtuoso and classically inspired artist. And did any of those evening sale uh, collectors actually get interested enough to bid or it was just the talking Absolutely. it up? Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, that explains the prices. I mean, it looked, if you're used to buying things in an evening sale, this looks cheap to you. And in many ways, it, it is cheap. He was sold at Swan in African-American sales, which is, is fantastic. But it's like selling a Basquiat in a, an African-American sale. I mean, he really is an extraordinary artist. And when you see, especially the big portraits, they look a lot like they should be next to uh, a Kindy Wiley on one side and an Alex Katz on the other. Yeah. I mean, he transcends the category of African-American. I mean, he's sort of gotten to the next level. Of, I mean, he deserves to have transcended the category Years ago, there was just not as much consciousness around his work and around, you know, lots of artists that sort of didn't get their due, neither in the academy nor the marketplace. But, I mean, I was like telling people to just buy this work, like just at whatever price, buy it. I'll get you out of it if you don't want it, like that kind of thing. Like, it's this is really incredible work. I mean, Carrie James Marshall, who's 
Like, I remember having a conversation with Kerry James Marshall in 1996 about this work, what that meant to him, like what Barclay's work. Obviously, Kerry James has a very different style and a different way, but a little bit of a similar strategy of trying to reinfuse or or introduce black subjects into the context of traditional fit painting. Kerry goes a little bit more in the realm of landscape and there's always a kind of mise-en-scene in Carrie's paintings. It's never these sort of stark portraits. But um, we talked a lot about that, and I asked, you know, Carrie if he had, when he first saw Barclay's work, and what did he think of it, and was it inspirational to him, or did he feel competitive with it, or, you know. And did he feel competitive with it, or, or was it inspirational? Carrie was like, he was very, no, he was very reverential, for sure. He paints these people in an unforgettable way. I mean, you sort of recognize his work uh, across a room almost immediately. And it's not because the figures are black. It's, it's, you know, the way he poses the portraits, the way he uses two or three images, the way sometimes Alex Katz does uh, uh, and all. I mean, he just has these uh, strategies and sometimes uh, it's just the use of color. I mean, some of those backgrounds, uh, I guess the most striking one was that um, unbelievable pink one that Shane Min had yeah, the woman standing on the pink ground. Oh, no, the man in the pink suit on the pink ground. Yeah, that was great. The curious thing about Barclay, I mean, I really see him as quite different than Alex Katz because Alex, in a way, first of all, Alex will often incorporate more background, and that's sometimes important, like the woman on the canoe or the Ada's hat or the boat scene or like a cityscape behind or something. He's like actually kind of into the setting. Whereas Barclay wants the setting to dissolve and for them to be almost like holy creatures, like like the way saints are painted in altar pieces. But Barclay also, there's a way where he lets you connect with the subject, whereas Alex Katz kind of flattens the subject out and you're not supposed to have too much specificity to who that, like the the women and men in Alex Katz's paintings could almost be surrogates for other people. In Barclay Hendricks, those People are immediately characters, including the you know the names Tough Tony and all. They they're they're like people you meet on the street you, and know by sight, but don't necessarily know uh, anything about them. Yeah, exactly. They're almost like flamboyant that way. So what happens uh, next? I'm assuming with that kind of visibility for those sales, you have the opportunity to locate more work. I mean, I will tell you also they are. Um... Difficult to, I mean, the people that own them typically don't want to sell them. Like, I've tried to talk to people to sell them before because I love them so much. Um, I mean, if I were a curator, I would ask them to exhibit them, but because I'm in this business, I ask them if they want to sell them. <laughs> uh, but they, but now that we've got close to a million dollars on these two top works, it might shake a few loose because that's sort of a different sum of money than like $150,000, $200,000. Well, that goes back to the owners. You said, um, you know, it was a brave thing to buy those in the 80s. Uh, do you know anything about what else they owned in terms of art? I mean, were these hanging as the only sort of paintings in their home or was it were they next to uh, other work? They had some other wonderful things that were sold in our sale also. Uh, so they, ha- they had other wonderful things that were like was in- that objects that were interspersed through the contemporary sale. Um, I can tell you that little Indiana love we sold in the evening sale was from the same collection. I know with a lot of African-American uh, uh, art, you, you know, the, the buyers are 
often dispersed and not necessarily in regular contact uh, with auction houses. And so sort of finding them and finding where the work's gone uh, is a, a fair bit of work. Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, there's been a number of exhibitions and things recently. So if you could go through like recent, cat, you know, they're not as fugitive as they once were. I think that's for sure. Um, and I think um, a lot of the people that came out of the woodwork to bid on these Barclays, some of them were the old guard people who I imagine were also bidders at Swan. And then there was like the new bigger buyers who came out and were just, you know, chasing it up. Just trounced them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> And do you think those people will will come back or will, you know, call Shaman to look for more? I mean, sort of having gotten a taste or paying attention now? Oh, I think there's, I think there's definitely a new consciousness around his work. Sadly, he's died, and I wish he, you know, had been here to see this and to, you know, come to meet some of the new collectors who um, are interested in work and learning about it for the first time. Um yeah, I mean, I, I wish you were around to sort of <laughs> to have been a part of this moment. But um, his, you know, his legacy lives on. I think his widow was able to see the prices. You know, that was I think it was gratifying for his family and friends to see this kind of success for him. Do you know if they they I presume the uh, family owns a fair amount of his work? Do you know if that's true? Well, I don't. I don't really know that for sure. I mean, the truth about his work is that it took a long time to make these paintings. So I don't think he was like as magnificently prolific as one might hope. He also taught for a living, so he had a kind of busy day job. You know, he definitely worked and was a working artist, but, you know, he was a professor for years, which takes hours of your hours of your week, you know. Yeah, no, he had a, a studio uh, in New London, but mm -hmm. worked up at Connecticut College uh, mm -hmm. uh, teaching, right? So the work took a long time to make. Like this, this kind of painting is virtuoso. It's like takes a long time. This, he doesn't whip one of these out in a week, you know. So, so there's no racks uh, uh, sitting somewhere with uh, dozens of, of these portraits uh, that he just, you know, wouldn't let go of, or you know, was so fond yeah, of. Yeah, I, I mean, I imagine the family has some of his work, of course, but he wasn't the kind of artist that would have left 300 pieces behind. Like, I mean, if he did 300 pieces in his life, I'd be surprised, you know. Well, that's what's so interesting. I just because there was such a long period where he was working and one presumes selling, but not that visible. And then that the you know uh, this last decade has involved uh, his being so much more visible. I mean, I don't know how much uh, work Shaneman sold uh, either. It's just when you when you see this kind of rapid turn, it's always very interesting to to know what what the sort of potential uh, environment is out there. You know how much work there is and and where it is and uh, how quickly some of it might come to market. I, I feel very good that all of these went to really exceptional homes. Uh, the three that we sold, and they they they're all they all went to to homes where people are going to be thrilled to own them for a long time, and will be hopefully good souls and generous lenders and things. I would imagine. Um, so some of the you know stature of what they collect will rub off um, him as well. I presume being absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That seems like it's the thing he needs is to be seen in in a different context. Yes. You know, uh, now so he certainly holds his own, or at least the work that I've seen, uh, and and only benefits from being, uh, you know, hung next to more familiar artists. Yeah, exactly. That's definitely true. 
I, I mean, I'm, I, I, you know, I, I only wish that he reaches the, you know, the heights of his generational peers who, you know, who are his generational peers as a painter through the 70s. Like, his great works are through the 70s and early 80s. So who are the great 70s painters? Bryce Marden. 70s is a weird time for painting, of course. Very weird time, but Bryce is definitely. In sort of figurative painting terms, isn't it more like uh, Eric Fischel? Or um, it seems odd to compare him to someone like David Sally, but, you know, the those... Yeah, although those guys really emerge in the early 80s, and Barclay had, like, a whole career in the 70s first. Like, his that painting you like of the pink guy, I think, is, like, 73 or 74. Like, he had a, a really, like, a whole career. He's, like, a decade ahead of them in terms of career. So I really think of him as, like, having come of age and made his some of his best works in the 70s. Yeah, figurative work in the 70s is weird. There's not many. Mm, let me think of who's in that. Susan Rothenberg a little bit, if you count her as figurative. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it would be nice if you were even at Carrie James Marshall's level, <laughs> when the children do, do better than the parents. Yeah. Looking at the popularity of uh, Kindy Wally, you would think that uh, some of that would have brought more attention to Hendrix's work. They They seem to have some relationship. That's where the market does do some good things of, you know, uh, waking people up and making them take a second look at things. Mm-hmm. Although Mar- Barclay already has a market in excess of Kehinda right now, so but a lot less prolific. Yeah. Not the visibility, though, in the number of museums and the familiarity. I mean, I, I think you could show a lot more people a, a Wiley and uh, and they'd be able to identify him uh, right. one way or another than, than Hendrix at this moment. And maybe that's you're, just... You're totally right. Also, you know, this is the way that people move through the world. Like no one, you know, there, there wasn't like a pot in, in the 70s and early 80s. There wasn't like... If you were a painter and a very dedicated painter, you were lucky to get a good faculty appointment and kind of pay the bills. Yep. And he had a a really good one. And uh, as you said earlier, I'm sure that was a, a priority to him. Yeah, that probably allowed him enough stability to paint consistently and regularly and not have to sweat paying the bills. So that's mostly yeah. the goal, you know. One can only hope that he ha- had a cast of characters up there in New London to draw from. I'd love to know more about who the people are in, in so many of these paintings. A lot of them, you know, he was, he, a lot of them were like, he had a lot, he had a kind of community and connection still in New Haven from his undergraduate and graduate days. So I think he would travel a lot to Yale and visit old friends and stuff like that. And New Haven would have quite a cast of characters to draw upon, as you know, if you've been up to New Haven. There's, there's a lot of like, you know, like interesting adaptations of Patriot jerseys, (laughs) like, you know cool sneakers you've never seen and stuff like that, you know, so, but it had like a kind of intensity that was um, colorful and alive. New London is is uh, e- equally the same, uh, half run down and half, you know, uh, had a lot of um, uh, money with uh, the shipyards and uh, and all. Well, I, I have to say it's it's uh, was a very impressive thing to see just that you had them uh, 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 as a consignment, but that you did so well with them really um, speaks to what you guys do do there, that you can actually, you know, bring people from one end of the market to the other and uh, uh, attract them and get them excited enough to actually, uh, you know, set a new level for an artist who, who surely deserves it. I mean, there was, 
I know this sounds like a sort of, you know, a bit of an overstate, but the Barclay paintings were one of the things I was most excited about in the whole season. That is why one presumes you do this. I mean, it's it's yeah, exciting to take something that you love and care about and want to be able to sh- convey that to other people and see them respond. And there's it's totally. great great when someone nods and says all the right things in front of the painting, but the real proof is when they're willing to open their checkbook and actually uh, compete for it. Uh, totally. I mean, you know, there's, that, that's, that was why what interested me in the story, besides liking the artist, is... You know, it, it really is a part of uh, a, what the process is here to be able to vouchsafe uh, your uh, excitement to someone and uh, see it return. That's why I'm curious about where it goes next, whether other people start paying attention to, to uh, his market and see if they can, you know, do you one better. Yeah, I mean, I felt like... Um... I, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm, obviously I was excited about our boss. Yeah, there were other things, but I was very excited about these paintings. And I felt there was a gestalt to them. Like, I sort of toyed with putting one in the evening sale, but I thought it would, I thought the three were stronger altogether. Because, honestly, if you were just introducing the work for the first time, like, not the first time he's come up at auction before, but not really in Christie's and Sotheby's sales, like the top 10 works were mostly at Swan or, you know, if you were showing a new audience this work, the three different works were all emblematic and sort of representative of how he could work across his his painterly lines. And if you isolated one, you would somehow not have that consistent narrative to explain the work to someone. So I actually think it worked to keep the three of them together. And sort of, and then just, I mean, I want to say he died and that helped, but I mean, like it was sort of like a whole moment to talk about him differently because he had passed. Well, but I assume too that the day sale gives people the feeling of a discovery. It, it, Absolutely. The day sale is like, I love the day sale. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Everyone still likes to make a find. Uh, you know, it's like a great uh, cheap restaurant, you know, the yeah. the, the giving them uh, promoting it too early to the evening sale is is sort of asking for something uh, different than just to, to let people enjoy the same excitement uh, that you and, and clearly others. I mean, it's not like he's he's completely unseen. I mean, he's been in a, a bunch of shows around the uh, Philadelphia museum had a, uh, a couple of his works in a African-American art show a few years ago. I mean, you, if you're, you're looking for him, you can, can see him, but everyone needs that feeling like they're the one who uh, made that discovery. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, I mean, also I think there's something about, I don't trust people who don't look at the day sales. <laughs> it's always like <laughs> gems in there. Like you have to look at it as you can see, from our market share in the day sale the last couple of seasons, like we care immensely about the day sale. We sell it like we care. We focus on it like we care. The top of the team is paying attention to the day sale. Like that's huge for me. Well, I would, I would think that's where you get a lot of your information right? and can have some more sort of open conversations with pe- people uh, around work in the day sale. It's just, um, it's the most robust of markets. Like, for example, in the evening sale, it's kind of been sorted for you, okay? Like, it's sort of, you know, the sorting exercise has been done. And things are, you know, things are estimated to be attractive, and so they get around. But in the day sale, you have to do the sorting. Yeah. It's right? The, 
it's the discovery, right? I mean, I don't, I mean, it's like going to rehearsals uh, or tryouts versus going to opening night. I don't think that, that that's necessarily a, a, a bad thing at all. I mean, people want in the evening sales, I, I, you could even make the case that one of the problems is the evening sales, too many things get promoted for other reasons and it screws up the theater of it all uh, and, and the drama. But people want to feel like they're buying certain things I presume in the marketplace, you know, in the souk, <laughs> where right, everyone's standing exactly. around yakking and you know, gossiping and yelling and whatever. And then you also want the hushed. Everyone's focused on one lot at a time experiences as well. And it's about which are the right lots there. I mean, I, I, I it feels like as time goes on that you know some of the evening sales do get uh, a little bit uh, the rhythm gets uh, 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 broken up with trying to serve too many masters uh, and I you know the great thing is actually watch some of the mid-season sales have both changed in their composition the last year or two or maybe three and certainly there's been a lot of activity in those uh, uh sales it's clear that at least for uh, a year or so the market has been about discovering new things yeah that's exactly right like that sense of discovery is so critical and and for all the how fantastic it is to set an enormous new record on a, a Basquiat, there's still something also, you know, about that uh, uh, discovery that I think gets the juices flowing. I know, it's so jazzy. Jazzy is a good word for it. Amy, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Okay, great. That's wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 